Welcome to Authorized, a podcast where we suspiciously read the novelization of any film fortunate enough to have one. Novelizations are successful second passes at a story that instill a dramatically inert movie with genuine tension. Whereas a film will juice as much suspense out of the whodunit element of its story, novelizations recognize that the emphasis is better placed on the characters themselves. Novelizations recognize that in order to care for its plot, we need to first understand its characters. We are your hosts, a loose coalition of novelization enthusiasts. My name is Andrew Overby. I'm Johnny Pomato. And I'm Hannah Blackman. U.S. Marshals is a 1998 crime thriller directed by Stuart Baird. It follows Mark Sheridan, an American fugitive living in contentment under an assumed identity. When a traffic accident on the streets of Chicago blows Sheridan's cover, he finds himself pursued by celebrity manhunter Sam Gerard of the noted film The Fugitive. <laughs> who is still enjoying local fame due to his pursuit and exoneration of the wrongfully accused Dr. Richard Kimball from the movie The Fugitive. Could have called this one Another Fugitive. I made that joke before, and then I was like, <laughs> like a couple weeks ago, and then I was like, I'm going to make that joke on the episode. Maybe a better title. <laughs> um, yeah, The Fugitive again. As Gerard looks into more details of his new fugitive, however, he once again finds that all is not as it may seem, which seems like it would raise a red flag with the, com- like, you know, what the government he works for. What are they doing? Right. No, I agree. And the next line yeah. might even agree mm-hmm. with you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't read ahead, and you know that. In attempting to search the world outside, Gerard is compelled to instead look inward at the U.S. Marshals themselves and the government agencies to which they are beholden, which, yeah, you're right, that happens mm-hmm. in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> the novelization, but it doesn't cause him to be like, am I the bad guy? So the, the, we'll get into this, but one of the great baffling things <laughs> about the film U.S. Marshals is that it's like, let's make a whole movie about that guy. Should we give him an arc? No. <laughs> no. He's good. He knows what he's up to. The novelization of U.S. Marshals was written by Max Allen Collins, based on a screenplay by John Pogue. It was published by Berkeley Boulevard in 1998, read by Johnny Pomato this week, and read by Hannah and Andrew about two months ago. <laughs> a lot of extenuating circumstances on this episode. Hannah and I read the book two yes. months ago, and like I have notes on it, and I have a lot of passages bookmarked and stuff, but I I basically don't remember why I bookmarked them. So that'll be fun to hop through. (laughs) Uh, Also... And that'll be a fun sneak preview for our upcoming Clueless episode, which I read thoroughly now, what, three weeks ago? Uh. Yes, absolutely. And by (laughs) sneak preview, you mean sneak into the past. (laughs) Oh, yes. Everyone remember that great episode? Uh, Yeah. I hope that some listeners try to like follow our clues, but like, what in what order were these recorded? <laughs> I'd be like, oh, okay, haven't recorded. That's a person who needs yeah. um, a hobby. And they found it. So yeah, that's an extenuating circumstance on this episode. Also, uh, I was at, at Hannah's home earlier today in another state and flew back home. And like, I, I've done a couple things, but basically, I'm just immediately jumping on to do an episode. So different energy than usual, and. Johnny, do you want to share your big news? Oh, yeah, this is exciting. Uh, after nearly three years of carefully avoiding it, uh, uh, COVID finally got me. So, um, 
you know, I don't know how, uh, like, uh, with it I'll be for this episode, but I haven't lost my voice yet, and I have nothing better to do right now, so, uh, so. You know, Johnny, I'm glad you're feeling okay, but welcome to the club. I've avoided it for a really long time, and then it hit you really I hard. know. I knew it was going to get me eventually. I'm just <laughs> mad at, at, at how and why. I, at least I'm, I've been, ter- you know, racking my brain, narrowing it down all day, and I, I think it was a, uh, a restaurant in Mount Vernon. So. Wow. Mount Vernon, New York. Yeah. Mount Vernon, Virginia. Uh, Mount Vernon, New York. I think like every yes, state has a Mount or Mont Vernon. There's one in New Hampshire too. Okay. Okay. We had exceedingly slow service and were there a long time. Long enough mm. for it to get inside of me. But I'm feeling okay. And I wouldn't have missed this for the world because uh, I have been wanting to see the movie U.S. Marshals since it came out. And as of this recording, I still have not seen it. Uh, yeah. uh, so I thought, well, this will be fun. I'll uh, I'll get to read it. And, and I really won't know what is going to happen, except I knew exactly what was going to happen. Because the main reason I never saw this movie, which I was really looking forward to as a fan of The Fugitive, still one of my favorite films of the 90s. Uh, I, I don't know why I missed this theatrically, but uh, when the, like the week it came out uh, on video, I was like, I'm going to go rent U.S. Marshals now. Can't wait. It's U.S. Marshals night, baby. Uh, you know, all I knew of it was uh, the, the, the trailer, which was, uh, I, I just remember Joe Pontoliano saying, you're the great Sam Gerard, and you always have to win, which is not even in this book. It's like, uh, <laughs> no, it's I had that bookmark too. Uh, I was but, like, why is it just better in the book? What's going yeah. on here? But I, I walk into the video store, I'm all ready to rent it, and those assholes are playing it on the screen, and I walk in and I look up, and I see them pointing a gun at Robert Downey Jr. <laughs> and say, it was you the whole time! I'm like, Aww. well, I guess I'm not renting this tonight, so, and I, and I still haven't, but uh, now I kind of want to. Johnny, here's my big idea. I, you you know, you, you might make it through the whole episode with us, but since you have COVID, here's my big idea. Ready? We're just going to knock it out up front. <clears throat> Johnny Pomato. You are a an extremely talented French actress who has been in films of incredible quality. You are for some reason doing a very small role in the sequel to The Fugitive. And it's basically stalled your career because you can't be shooting other stuff. However, you know, you're just on set all the time and you're barely in any scenes. So when they're doing all of this bullshit about there being a fugitive and some guy hunting him, and you are not needed on set, you have the option to read The Fugitive by Max Allen Collins in your probably really nice trailer. To read U.S. Marshals, not The Fugitive. I think I of this movie as, or this book as The Fugitive. Okay, just wanted to clarify. I think of The Fugitive as The Fugitive Origins. Mm-hmm. Johnny, you have the option to read U.S. Marshals by Max Allen Collins in your downtime. Do you do it? Uh, God, if only I had some downtime, right? Um, I waited until I had finished the book to go to IMDb and, like, see who all the characters were, because I, I remembered that uh, Joe Pantoliano was Renfro and whatnot, uh, but uh, I'm scrolling through, and then suddenly I see Irene Jacob there, and I was like, wait, what? <laughs> who? What? Th- th- there's no good parts for women in this movie, and, uh, yeah, sure enough, she's uh, Marie. Um, yeah, uh, I I can't imagine that the, uh, the role in the actual film is that thankless uh, for her, or Wesley Snipes, for that matter. But, yes, to answer your question. I'm kind of glad I read this uh, because I love The Fugitive and I love Sam Gerard, and this did come at a point of Tommy Lee Jones's career where he was 
taking money jobs, but he wasn't yet completely phoning it in. Like, you know, he was taking movies to fund his polo team. That's a real thing. <laughs> did that. That's why he's in Men in Black 2 and 3, because he it, his polo team costs like $4 million a year just to uh, operate. Uh, well, horses. Yeah, exactly. You, you have to have four horses per game. Four horses per game. Expensive. Uh, per, yeah, exactly. Um so he he was taking money jobs, but like his heart was still at least enough in it that he would be kind of fun. And I I don't know if he is as bad in this movie as he is in like say Man of the House. I'm guessing or Men in Black Three. Hey, but, Man of the House is pretty charming. Okay, I I, I just plucked that out of the air. I I, I was making assumptions there, uh, <laughs> but I will say while I was reading this and I was imagining Tommy Lee Jones doing it, I'm thinking. Yeah, I'll bet he was pretty good here. I bet he was turning it on. I'll bet he was like, you know, I got to page 55 when he does his like, you know, this movie's outhouse hen house, you know, speech. I was like, oh, yeah, here we go. All right. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's not a great story. Uh, and even if I didn't know who the villain was from the start, I would have figured it out pretty quick because it seems very obvious. But I do like the idea that there's like... 30 Sam Gerard stories, like 30 books, if not 30 movies. There should have at least been three movies, I feel. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it, the, you know, the way that there's like, you know, 50 born Jason Bourne books, there should be a few Sam Gerard books. And uh, if, you know, this is like a perfect airplane book that's not very good, but uh, it... Yeah, you know, I, I I finished it. I'm amazed. I finished it. I I, I thought it would skim through this whole thing. It's like, eh, I kind of want to see what happens. I am but, uh, not with you. Look, this is a fine story. Well, I like this book. I like the book. Yeah, but like, I I I I will probably recommend the book to someone. But like, Andrew Overby to are me you saying that you an FBI agent. No, no, no. We're not doing everyone. In the, oh, we're not doing everyone. <laughs> no, we're just doing Johnny, just in case he drops off. Fine, fine. Um, I'll save my. But it worked. It weirdly worked. It's like let us into the discussion. The, the uh, Sam Gerard as as a protagonist, I don't find interesting at all. Well, the problem with this book is that he is not the protagonist, and he yeah. should be. Mm-hmm. Like that's the the in the fugitive. Richard Kimball, the innocent fugitive, is the protagonist, and Sam Gerard is the antagonist, but he's a good guy. In this movie, they try to pull that again, and it just doesn't work, because you want the mystery of, is Wesley Snipes guilty or not? Right. And that has to happen if you're only with Sam Gerard the whole time, discovering things as he discovers them. And instead, the movie and the book give you too much back and forth perspective, where Wesley Snipes, whose name is what? Sheridan? Mark Sheridan. Is like, I'm innocent. I'm innocent. I'm innocent. And you're like, okay. Gotcha. He has the exact same arc as The Fugitive. It's just he has more screen time to do it with. Uh, I would love for another Sam Gerard book or movie to uh, be where everything is what it seems. Yeah. Yeah. Why is he always chasing fake fugitives? A, yeah, a bad guy. I, I want him to yeah. catch someone who deserves to be caught. And uh, and He's you know. clearly good at his job as a U.S. Marshal Manhunter. <laughs> and he should be allowed to do it without then being like, you're innocent. I'm sorry. So uh, the key difference, I think, between these two movies, like not even getting to the book, is that what, you, what you've already alighted upon, Hannah, which is like the the fugitive is like, here's a character. Don't you like him? He got framed. And then you're like with him the whole time. You're like really on that emotional journey with him. This movie is like, did he do it? And it th- that tension really doesn't work for me because 
at the beginning, Snipes is giving a performance like he is, in fact, very innocent. And, like, the scene where he's being interrogated by the police in the movie is, like, he's like, I've never even been there. I don't know what you're talking about. And I'm like, I believe him fully. Yeah. And then later, when it's revealed that he's that he is a fugitive but a framed one or something, I'm like, that doesn't square for me with this early performance, which I think gives the book a natural advantage because the book has to in some ways, at least implicitly, admit that he is a fugitive. Or at least that he's keeping secrets. Like, there's a part very, very early on where, on page three, (laughs) where it's saying that, um, and while Sheridan was a careful driver, and beyond that, a man whose senses were finely honed due to the nature of his dangerous job, his real job, not his tow driver side route, blah, blah, blah. But he, like, it drops these little hints that he is not what he seems. And that's enough for you to be like, oh, suspicious. Maybe he's a crook. Yeah, that's the thing. The whole thing reeks of conspiracy from the get-go. And, like, the more you find out how capable Sheridan is, it's like, oh, well, he's probably a, a trained government agent or something being framed. There's, It's a real weak mystery. And Sheridan is barely a character himself. Like, uh, I'm not sure if it feels more like he has an arc in his own movie uh but in the book it's like every time it cuts back to him it's like oh yeah i forgot yeah mm. he's trying well i think part of the thing is like with the fugitive uh mr kimball is trying to solve a crime that we understand because it's a murder we're like great a murder right. he has to try and solve this murder he's been framed for the thing that sheridan has been framed for is like really convoluted hannah Richard Kimball did not go to eight years of medical school to be called Mr. <laughs> Please. Excuse me. I'm so sorry. Dr. Kimball. There you go. But Mr. Sheridan um, <laughs> has to deal with something so convoluted. It's like, I don't I don't even know what he's do- trying to achieve half the time. Yeah. Did you know that there's no regulation yes. legally on honorifics? That, like, it's, it's illegal for me to be like, I'm a great kidney doctor. Come to me. But I can just go by doctor. It's fine. Oh. Yeah, I think Bill Cosby still does. That's he he had something, right? <laughs> anyway, not worth discussing. He got an honor. Here's the yeah. here's the problem, Hannah. I I know, I know that we both read this book a long time ago. But like yeah. you're talking about page three, how it's like hinting at him having another life. Let's go to page one, paragraph one, word uh one. <laughs> where the book opens with for a fugitive, the best place to hide is often in the open. On this mildly overcast fall afternoon in Chicago, Illinois, the towers of the city looming in all their geometric glory, the man behind the wheel of a Paukowski towing truck hauling a crushed Ford station wagon from a south side accident to a north side garage was hiding among millions of people. Then, page two, it says... And I, well, we know he is the fugitive. You were just saying that we They're don't know him. to hide. No, but we... No, what I was saying is that we don't know what his deal actually is. Oh. Like... He's a secret agent. He's a criminal. We don't know. That he is the fugitive is not a surprise of how it's written because of all the stuff you just read and also the setup and basic premise of this story that we know going in is that there will be a no, fugitive. No, but Hannah, he could be a fugitive because he go get, he escapes from the plane crash in the way that Richard Kimball is a fugitive where he's not guilty of the original crime. Does that make sense? Right, but... Yes, that's true. But he is currently a fugitive, and it's okay with me that the book is telling me 
he's already no, on the I run. like it too. But why and is it correct are the things that I find sprinkled throughout and think are pretty good. Why are we fighting? Did we spend too much time <laughs> together recently? I know. It was for four days together. It was like really nice and now we're like exploding. <laughs> One of the great mysteries of, I was going to say, our friendship, uh, you, you, cut, you really stole my thunder there. I was going to say one of the great mysteries of our partnership is that we can't um, agree in peace. Because um, it sounds like we're agreeing. The thing I like about the book, the thing I really <laughs> like about the book, is that because the novelization-ish toolkit is interiority, I say the same thing on every episode, it, you, they have to reveal that he has this double life. And the movie is trying to play coy and be like, what's going on with him? And it's like, I, there's something going on. Like, I'm not, I'm not that stupid. Going to page two, different point. I just think this is a good passage. On page mm-hmm. two, it says, he had not expected to become quite so comfortable in this temporary life. He'd always been mechanically adept and had already received two raises at Paukowski's. He had not been a fugitive long enough to know how dangerous it was for him to feel this comfortable. To be able to get lost, as he was now, in the sound of Otis Redding's voice on that oldie station, paying more attention to whistling along with Doc of the Bay than the police scanner he also had going. Good paragraph. Yeah. Really his whole deal, and it's like the police scanner, it, the police scanner is like, you, you know, there's that, that moment in the in the movie where they find the gun under his uh, glove compartment, and that's sort of a, a a sign that maybe he has a more sinister side or a past. The mention of the police scanner does the same thing a little more subtly, where it's like, why is he listening to a police scanner as a as a tow truck driver? I just think it's good writing and baffling because it's from the guy who wrote Wind Talkers. This is a much better book than Wind Talkers, hands down, like clearly. I did not read Wind Talkers, but I uh, will agree that I think that the writing overall uh, is often quite good, uh, better than the material perhaps deserves. I don't think that he's always great at conveying action. Like the, mm-hmm. the plane crash, I was really struggling to kind of see or see in my head what exactly was happening. Uh, and then I watched the trailer right before we uh, record this. I was like, oh, that's what the plane crash was supposed to look like? Totally different in my head. But that's fine. Um, I yeah. think sometimes he's quite uh, playful and there's some like kind of fun, cheeky things. Uh, if I may read my favorite passage from the Please book, do. Please do. And, and Johnny, there's one really good passage from Wind Talkers. I'll read it to you sometime. No. No. Oh, okay. Oh, oh my. I have to go good. back it's and listen trick. to that episode. <laughs> so, um, you know, uh, Sheridan is on the run and, you know, the dogs are on his tail and they're going to catch a scent eventually. So what would you do to uh, throw the dogs off your scent? He has a brilliant idea. Um, so, uh, okay. Uh, he unzipped his orange prisoner's oh, yeah, pants. I have this too. It t- <laughs> of course you do. It's the only reason to read this <laughs> book, maybe. It took a while to will himself to do it, as if he were at a urinal in a men's room with some guy sneaking a look. Anybody could get a s- get stage fright under those conditions. But finally, the yellow stream of urine was sailing down into the thicket, using his penis as a paintbrush. Sheridan coated the rock-strewn drop-off, and the urine glistened like gold in the sunlight, catching green leaves like fresh morning dew. I mean, come on. Come on! That's pretty good. Love to check off description of pissing from my list. I mean, that's poetic pissing, though. Yeah, I remember reading that passage. I do not have it bookmarked to my credit. (laughs) 
it really like I think I was sort of a little drowsy at that point, and that woke me right up. Like, what what is happening? Wow, you <laughs> Max Allen Collins is getting a little carried away with this uh, passage. I think this book is well written, and I think it is successful. The crime stuff, like parts of it, are almost instructional, and I think mm. that's where it really sings. Is when it's like. And I think the stuff that's good about the movie and about Sam Gerard as a character is he's like a man doing a very good job and he knows how to do it and it's good. And so when the book gets into that sort of like mindset of like, we're hunting a fugitive, so we have to go here, here and here and do this, this and this. And he's like assigning people stuff. It's very strong. And, uh, you know, Andrew, you read the first paragraph of the first chapter. And I think we We have have to to note that most chapters open with either the fugitive must do this or the manhunter does this. And it sort of bounces back and forth between like an instructional concept for the rest of the chapter, but not every single chapter, which is a failing. For the listener, this is not like them describing uh, Gerard or Wesley Snipes' character literally as the manhunter or the fugitive this is like philosophical rumination on what a manhunter or a fugitive must do yeah a manhunter close to his prey experiences a unique brand of frustration is chapter 21 i think that's the one i had bookmarked too yeah chapter 17 the manhunter pursuing a fugitive frequently leads a life filled with dead ends like almost all of them open with this sort of little pronouncement it's great yeah i kind of like that And it it also gave it the feeling of like, oh, yeah, there's 30 of these books. Like, this is like Mm -hmm. a signature trope in these things. Like, every single one of these, you know, uh, know, Sam Gerard stories is actually this sort of uh, life lesson or or lesson to what makes a good Manhunter. And then sometimes you get a book, or in this case, two books, and the only two books, where the fugitive is actually innocent. So we get the sense of what uh, makes a good fugitive and how one proves his innocence. So that's that's a a theoretical issue I have with this conceit, which is like, it's fun that the book keeps doing a manhunter does this, a fugitive does this, but it feels like a lot of the chapters should be like a wrongly accused fugitive does this, because if you were reading a book with a fugitive that mm. was that was, that was was wanted in earnest, it feels like the chapters would be like, a fugitive must not spare those who see that he is alive, or something like that, Right. Like, this is very much the perspective of, like, a good guy fugitive. Yes, and I think what makes this film slash book work less than The Fugitive is that we understand what Richard Kimball wants at the beginning of The Fugitive. Like, he, kn- we know that he is innocent. We know that he knows he's innocent, and we know he knows who actually did it. Mm-hmm. It's the one-armed man, people. Uh, and then, of course, there's the whole thing with his doctor buddy and Lex and all that. But um, The extended cut of The Fugitive has one of the best I want songs I've ever heard. <laughs> but Mark Sheridan, I guess he just... His plan is like, well, I'm going to lay low for a while in Chicago. Uh, and <laughs> like, you seem like you're better at this, like in everything else that you do, that you would have gone into hiding better than you're doing. Like, oh, yeah, I'll be a tow truck driver and like get a hot French girlfriend. The timeline of it is hard for me because like the fugitive takes place over like five days. It feels mm-hmm. right. And yeah. U.S. Marshals, between the crime that he is a fugitive for committing, though, which he did commit, though it was self-defense, not murder. Yeah. And when we catch up with him, it could be six months. It could be one month. It could be, I have no idea, uh, which feels like a problem. Yeah, it's, well, and then also it's like he 
proving his innocence was never part of the plan. I He doesn't seem to have the uh, resources to do so. It just kind of stumbles upon him because Sam Gerard is noticing that Royce is sort of up to no good and doing some shady framing things as well. Uh, you know, Mark Sheridan doesn't do much to point anyone in that direction. Does he? No, not until he's like full out on the run that he decides yeah. he has to do anything about it. So I guess we can just we should just like be explicit about what he did and why he's been fugitivized. Sure, this is a full spoilers podcast. Uh, I also have a million questions about what Royce's plan was because I really don't understand. Wait, before that. before you do that, the uh, end point of this uh, a fugitive does a manhunter does thing that keeps recurring is this weird yeah. deflation at the beginning of chapter twenty four where it's like. He says, at the end of the day, a manhunter is only a man, as human and susceptible to injury, physical and emotional, as any man he hunts. It's this weird, like, that he's obviously trying to do, like, a cool thing with the fugitive manhunter thing. And then eventually he's like, sometimes manhunters get sad. <laughs> and he has good reason to be sad. Mm. He does. Uh, th- that's, that's after the death of Newman, mm-hmm. right? Uh, yes, which you know, uh, in in the fugitive, he he has that scene where he uh, he's he's maybe deaf in one ear uh, after Tommy Lee Jones uh, you know shoots a gun right next to him, and he's very sad. He says, you know, I'm gonna have hearing damage for the rest of my life, and uh, yeah, you are, and it's not gonna be much longer. Yeah, <laughs> Hannah, go ahead with uh, your ruminations on the plot. Oh, um, well, Mark Sheridan was a government agent, but a not kite. like a. Right, he's like a guy who they just could... He's a mission impossible. He could be disowned at Mm -hmm. any point, right? So he is brought in to do a document swap with some Chinese diplomats. Mm -hmm. And in the course of doing it, some other guys jump him and he kills them in self-defense. Right. And it turns out those guys were legit government agents who were going to... Like, the goal was to use him as like a... Like a... What's the word? A patsy. Yes, a, ca- a patsy. A pa- that, like they are framing him as like a mole giving away government secrets when actually the actual government is giving away government secrets and it's Robert Downey Jr. Right. Right. So then <laughs> Mark Sheridan's on the run. They catch him on accident due to this tow truck crash. He gets put on a pl- transport plane. The plane crashes because the Chinese attempt to assassinate him. Totally. Right? Okay, then Sam Gerard is brought into the case. No, he's on the plane. To- he's on the plane, yeah. right. They assign him to do tri- prisoner, like, go-withs, go-with-alls, go-alongs. Right. Right. Okay, but then the plane crashes, at which point Robert Downey Jr. shows up, his character's name is Royce, and he's smarmy and smug, and everyone hates him. <laughs> and he's like, hey, I'm here to help solve the crime and catch the guy, which he does actively try to do. Right. And there are moments when he could just shoot him and be done with it, but he doesn't, for reasons I don't understand. What moments could he shoot him and be done with it? Because he eventually does try to shoot him and be done with it, like, twice. <laughs> yes. Um, in the swamp, he definitely could have just shot him, and instead mm-hmm. they have a standoff for no reason. Right, I can tell. right, right. And then honestly, like in the hospital where he ends up shooting Newman, he could also have shot, I think, probably Sheridan. Mm. Though he tries there more, but it just feels like he's too helpful. 
he like gets yeah. all this evidence that helps them understand that Sheridan's being framed and is like, whoa, that's no good. I'm like, dude, you knew that. You did that. <laughs> Why did you bring them that No, the evidence, evidence thing is like yeah. him acting badly. I'm pretty sure. Every time they're like, wait, but in this video, it looks like self-defense. What's going on with that? He's always like, I don't know. I'll try to find out. And then there, the, he has that moment where he's like, I, we don't have the clearance to get that info. And Tommy Lee Jones is like, what are you? We're cops. Get the clearance. What are you talking yeah. about? But like, it'd be so easy for him to be like, I tried, but it's gone. And well, instead he's the, like, I got it. <laughs> that was the strangest thing for me was, you know, because I knew that it was going to be Robert Downey Jr. Uh, the moment when he's like, oh, why don't we have the, uh, the, 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 the surveillance video from the evidence? We need that. And finally, uh, Robert Downey Jr. reluctantly gets it, and at first they're like, "Oh my gosh, who shot this, Jacques Cousteau? It's underwater. Looks like it's underwater. You can barely see anything." It's like, "Aha! Our our, our fiendish Royce tampered with it." It's like, "Well, no, you can see it well enough, and you can see that self defense." It's like, "Yeah, if anything, this almost clears Sheridan." It's like, "Wow, you're really bad at this, Royce. You had every opportunity to go like, oh, can you believe it? The tape was destroyed or something.'" But no, yeah. he just gives it to him. Yeah, he's way too helpful. And it feels like the movie is trying to make make it more of a surprise when he's the bad guy. Yeah. But it doesn't, it's not doing enough. Like, he doesn't seem innocent initially. He just seems like a dick. And then, uh, personally, he's not doing enough sabotage either. Like, you can't look back on the movie and be like, oh, he was sabotaging the investigation the whole time. Which would be fun, but he's not. I think, I can't really explain why he would... Not shoot him in the swamp. So that's just, I just don't have that. But I think that his plan makes sense, which is like, why commit more subterfuge when he can just engage in the investigation in earnest and then murder him and be like, it was self-defense or whatever. Because then he doesn't have tracks to cover. If he's like, I was helping, then I had to kill him. And they're like, well, he did help us a lot. Yes. I also want to say, I find this, the first time I watched this movie, which I don't like, and I wrote on Letterboxd, every time I watch this movie, I like it less. It's like, just so, it's so meandering. Yeah, you keep watching it. Well, <laughs> I watched You want it. to like it. I'm with Andrew on this yeah. one. Every time I watch it, I really want to like yeah. it. It's built of things I should like, and then it's so airless. And yeah, boring. I still want to watch it, even having read this whole thing, and, and, and you warning me off it. But, well, Johnny, uh, if, you, I don't know. if you need the real breakdown here... I was squatting in a friend's room uh, a, 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 one of my college summers, and he was watching every Wesley Snipe movie, so that's when I saw it for the first time. Then uh, uh, someone I was dating wanted to watch it, so I saw it a second time, and then a podcast I like covered it, so I watched it a third time, and then my podcast covered it, so I watched it a fourth time. <laughs> so, My story is I wanted to see it real bad in 2009 when I was like very hot on Robert Downey Jr., uh -huh. And I couldn't find it anywhere. And then I caught it on TV once. And I was like, whoa, U.S. Marshals. Cool. Then I actually rented it at some point. And I was like, wait, U.S. Marshals, not so not cool. Not so cool. Then I saw The Fugitive and was like, wait a second, U.S. Marshals, bad. I think this... So first of all, I, I think the Robert Downey Jr. twist, the first time I saw it, legitimately got me. And the reason is, even though he's playing so smarmy from the beginning and all of that stuff, it was the language of the times to not have a smarmy character turn out to be evil. Also, that's all Robert Downey Jr. could do in 1998. Well, maybe. Was be smarmy. But sure. Uh, but I really thought that they were making him such a piece of shit 
that he would like come in clutch in the end and there'd be this like begrudging like tommy lee jones being like i really respect you and you really saved my ass for the very true to life for the shitty guy to be shitty shocking i think that there's another wrinkle to it as well that makes it a little surprising in that i believe this was the first job that robert Downey jr got after his legal troubles after he had Mm. been to prison and there was this big debate on like is this guy just done like he had a few films in the can when he uh you know when he went away and none of those films did any good business uh, afterwards and um uh and so this was the first film that i think he got hired to make after his prison so it was maybe a little surprising that it was as good a role as it was because most people thought like oh well you can throw him a bone here and then but he's not going to be like a uh, a lead or even a co-lead again uh after everything that happened uh so yeah, yeah i think it is a little surprising that he uh is so integral to the plot, uh, much more than I remember at the time the trailer made it seem he would be. Yeah, it's kind of, I mean, I feel like in watching the movie, if you don't know that he's the bad guy at the end, he's just another one of the guys on the team for most of the movie. And the fact that he's like the third photograph on the cover of the book is like almost surprising to me. Yeah. It feels like it should be the girl. Is anyone else's book totally falling apart? I don't have a front or back cover anymore in the process of reading. Oh, damn. No, mine's, mine's, I tape mine together all the time. Wow. I order a book, I receive it. If it's not in good shape, I immediately do book surgery on wow. it. Wow. <laughs> Speaking of the book, the we, we referenced earlier uh, the, the one U.S. Marshal getting getting killed, and uh, and that's the passage that gives us, you know, a manhunter is only a man. But so sad. this book really pluses up Gerard being sad about Newman dying. Uh, in the movie, I couldn't believe it after reading the book. In the movie, yeah. TLJ walks outside the hospital, and I'm sorry to the listeners, I just have to do this visually. His whole performance is he just goes, <laughs> his head just falls, and then the movie cuts away. Whereas in the book we get, when they arrived at NYU Med Center, the paramedics and the hospital's emergency staffers did their jobs, hustling the still body out of the ambulance and inside the ER. But Gerard did not join the race. As he stumbled from the rear of the ambulance, his clothing, his hands streaked with his young deputy's blood. Gerard knew there was no need for hurry. The race was over. As the rocketing ambulance had emerged from the Queen's Midtown Tunnel, Deputy Noah Newman had looked up at him with fear and pain and some terrible unspoken regret, and the hand Gerard had been holding had gone limp, and the fear had gone from his eyes, and so had everything else. Gerard did not go inside. He walked away, and as soon as he found enough darkness to wrap himself within, he collapsed to his knees and wept like a child for the child he'd lost. I mean, I hadn't seen this movie in a while, but when I read this, I was like, <laughs> Tommy Lee Jones does not do that in the movie because he barely shows emotion in this film. I think that there's a lot of things in this that Tommy Lee Jones, uh, like I couldn't imagine him actually doing in the movie because even at this stage of his career, Tommy showed up to set and only did so much. And, you know, every once in a while, Sam Gerard has a great one-liner where it's like, oh yeah, I can I can hear Tommy in my head right now saying that line. But then there's other things, yes, like showing so much emotion and like having this tender scene with this uh, younger girlfriend at the beginning and stuff like that, where I, I just imagined like, God, he was up for this. And and I think the, the, the mother of them all was at the beginning of the book when I'm reading this and thinking, 
wait, wait, wait. Tommy Lee Jones put on a chicken costume? That does not sound like Tommy Lee Jones. That, that, that's in the movie. Uh, apparently he did. That's, that's in, in it. Movie. Yeah. I was amazed. I, I, I thought it was being punked. This is insane. Chicken costume. What is this? Uh, stir crazy? Yeah. No, this book is um, much more emotionally invested in the relationship between Gerard and his agents who are like his kids, which is a dynamic that, as we all know, is my favorite dynamic of the world. (laughs) Grumpy dad, group of kids. They're a bit of a found family. (laughs) Yeah, it's so nice. And like Renfro gets like a lot of like better scenes of being like, hey man, I know you. Mm -hmm. I'm the eldest son here, I get it. Uh, Which are just not really in the movie. And they're all like jokey and fun with each other. And it's like, they just have like a nice lived in little relationship that doesn't as I recall, super carry into the movie. Yeah, in The Fugitive, they are a very effective, well-oiled team, but they do not ever feel like a family. You don't imagine, oh yeah, they all go out for beers at the end of the day, and they, they go to a family you know barbecues on weekends and stuff it's like no 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 they're uh they're they're uh, they're good at their job he is their asshole boss who they sort of begrudgingly respect but like they don't like each other necessarily uh yeah i don't know and this book is like big dog woof woof we love each yeah. other it's great well it makes the uh, we referenced it already but it makes the scene where renfro like throws a fit way more of a thing he's saying things in this i'm looking at the past right now he's saying things like you know, uh, you're as close to a best friend as I've ever had, is something he says to Gerard. Yes. It makes yeah. it really, really yeah. personal. Whereas in the movie, he's like, you just want to get that fugitive, which is bad. I mean, that is, the, like I said, all I really had to go by for years was the trailer for this that I saw when it came out. And I couldn't understand why in the trailer it was highlighting this scene of Joe Pontigliano, who unwisely shaved his beard, uh, was so angry and upset with him and like calling him out. It's like, no, in the in the fugitive, you're just like his his good like number two guy. And uh, I, w- what did he what could he have possibly done to to get you so worked up? And, and that's not what I want to see. That's not the dynamic I show up for. It is the dynamic I show up for. Uh. No, in the movie, it feels a little um, like out of the blue. I'm with you. In the book, I'm with it. I like it. And I appreciate someone being like, can you care for a minute? When we, the reader, know that he cares a lot. You know? Right. And like, I'm going to, you know, he's like, I'm going to go with you. I'm going to help you catch this guy. And Sam's like, I have to do it alone. I'm a butch macho man. (laughs) Which is potent, emotional, inter-character dynamics. Yeah, I I like the idea of Gerard parsing out a little emotion with every new uh, Sam Gerard novel. Just a little bit every time you get to know him a little more as a person, and you and you start to think, oh, he he he's not such a bad guy. Oh, he's actually a sweetheart. If you get past his like you know salty crust, uh, but uh, here I think it you, you sometimes get a little. Too much. Well, actually, no. I, maybe I'm with you, Hannah, in that I like it in the book. But again, going to what you're saying, Andrew, uh, I don't think I don't sense that that's in the movie. So it's mm-hmm. like I don't know. It needs to maybe fall somewhere in between. I think if we're talking about, let's say this is a ten book Sam Gerard series, mm-hmm. right? The Fugitive is maybe book three, mm-hmm. and U.S. Marshals is like book seven. Where you can like, oh my god, they killed Noah. Can you believe it? You know, like, exactly. whoa, what a crazy thing to do. That like, we we've known him for seven stories and we love him. 
and we're sad too. And then you can have these moments where he's like, you know, they have these interpersonal dynamics because you have had enough time of them just being coworkers who care about each other. But then when Gerard is like, we just work together, we're not friends, and Renfro is like very hurt by that, it feels earnest and it makes sense. We're just like in a weird position where this is the second one yeah. when it should be like the seventh Basically one. all plot and twists feel a little rushed in this movie and the book does the best they can with it. Something that the book highlighted a little too much that I found really weird was mm-hmm. that Robert Downey Jr. is not like a cog in this evil machine. He's like the mastermind he's acting alone practically we, uh, uh, other that's than not the, guys. the vibe i got from that performance yeah. i thought he was a dweeby little hired gun and then in the book is like the book is like it was all him all along he set up sheridan and now he's coming to clean up his mess i was like really he orchestrated the plane crash i mean come <laughs> on he's such a little weasel and like the thing in the book is that like every single time royce like rolls up into a scene the book is like his smug ass face was so annoyingly smug and you're like yes okay he's a smug little weasel he's smirking all the time he's like too smart for his own good and the book like hates him and you're on that page and the performance in the movie it i just like both the smugness of the book and the performance of the movie. I can't believe that this guy has had like a mastermind plan. I don't buy it. Do, do you think it's it. fair for me to spoil a Mission Impossible movie, given that the most recent one is six years old or whatever? Yeah, go nuts. Yeah. Uh-huh. This is also, I mean, I'm talking about the most recent one, but this is also how I feel in Mission Impossible 6 when Henry Cavill is talking to Sean Harris and he's like, Sean Harris quotes him and he goes, when I wrote those words, and I was like, this bodybuilder wrote the manifesto? That doesn't feel right. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm like, no, no, you are a hired arms <laughs> yeah. man. You are a puncher. You got no brain in that. That mustache so. doesn't write the terrorist manifesto. That's not right. <laughs> yeah. I have a, a plot question. In the book, and once again, read the book two months ago. In the book, there's a part where where Mark is watching the Chinese embassy, and a thing that I don't think happens in the movie happens where he injects a metallic liquid into the postal bag that someone is carrying, and I could not figure out what that was about. Does anyone know? I think putting the thing into the mail is like a test, as like a it's like a tracking device type thing. That he can like follow the radioactive isotopes of whatever he put in the mail. And he's like, okay, it works. Now when I drop a, a radioactive isotope package on the Chinese embassy guy, I'll be able to follow him successfully. Wait, so I don't understand what the Question payoff mark? is. What does he do to the Chinese embassy guy that's the result of that? I think theoretically he essentially puts a tracking device on okay. him. But ends up following him in person successfully. Gotcha. Yeah, in the book, they were just like, he shot a silver thing into the mailbag, and then he was happy of it. And it's like, why? Most of the stuff that Sheridan does in New York, I don't understand. Yeah. Like, I'm along for the ride, but I don't get it. Yeah, we are never in his head. We we never get his perspective, even in the chapters focusing on him. It's like, he's always keeping secrets because, you know, it will spoil the ending for us. But uh, I, I really wish that he were his own protagonist and uh you know every once in a while he said something to his french girlfriend that made us understand you know why he even is bothering to do this as opposed to 
flying to Brazil. Yeah. I wish this movie, this movie's trying to have its cake and eat it too. And I wish it just like looked at the cake through a window and was like, interesting cake. We'll never know what's inside the cake. Wait, so you wish they didn't tell us if he did it or not? Yeah. Yeah, I wish that we discovered, along with Gerard and his team, that Sheridan was innocent. Like, I wish you spent the first half of the movie being like, this guy is a dangerous criminal. And then it's a real twist that he's also an innocent fugitive. And then there's, like, another twist that he's being framed by the guy on your team. Exactly. Uh, Even in The Fugitive, like, we know that Richard Kimball is innocent. But what we don't know is that, like, oh, this goes way beyond just some murder. Mm -hmm. There is a big mystery to it. And the you know, conspiracy with Royce just doesn't, you know, equal that. It th- There's not enough there there. It, they also, like, solve the thing, and then the reveal with Royce happens. You know, like, they catch Sheridan, he's in the hospital, he's under handcuffs, he's done. That plot is wrapped. And then there's another scene in the hospital, which just, like, isn't as exciting as, like, Harrison Ford busting into that medical conference and being like, you killed my wife! <laughs> yeah. I couldn't believe it. There were, like, 11 pages left and Robert Downey Jr. is still a good guy. It's like, <laughs> what is going on here? I, I know what's coming. Uh, although, I mean, boy, oh, boy, do they really... And this is not the fault of the, the novel. Uh, I'm sure it's the problem of the movie. They really telegraph these these moments, this, the whole backup piece thing, the backup weapon thing. Wow. They say that an awful lot. It's like, gee, I wonder if this is going to be a thing at the end. And uh, uh, yeah, there's a few others like that where I, I sense that like, well, someone is a little too pleased with themselves for this, uh, this little thing that they're saying up that we are way ahead of. You know, who's too pleased about that backup gun thing? What's that? Robert Downey Jr. <laughs> like that uh, character just being like, I did it. I got the gun you wanted me to get. Isn't it good? I'm going to shoot you with it. Is obnoxious. But the line in the book is funnier than the line in the movie. In the movie, <laughs> the, he's like, I got the backup gun. In the book, they have the um, see you were my role model. Which, Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. See, I, wait, let, well, let, let me read it. See you. You are my role model. I finally did get that backup piece there's a bunch of ellipses in there because he's dying (laughs) this is something that i did not really sense throughout the book and i was wondering if it plays differently in the movie of this notion that i think is introduced kind of late that uh that royce sort of looks up to gerard uh, that he oh like i think that would be a good element if you had this new recruit who comes in and he's reluctantly working with them and and gerard hates him uh but uh he loves gerard like i want to be you and I did not get that in most of the writing until like the last bit. And then it pays off with that. Yeah, you really were my role model. It's like, yeah, that would have been a good dynamic to explore that I don't think is quite there. I have to believe he's like being facetious in that moment, which doesn't really read in the book when it should. Um, And you can really kind of imagine like Robert Downey Jr. He's been shot in the chest like three times. And he's like, yeah, you were my role model. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, like Yeah, when I you mean, do like it like that, it. it makes sense. But on the <laughs> other hand, I think it would have explained why he is kind of helping. He is mm-hmm. kind of like helping the case. Uh, and yeah, maybe he has this evil plan to undercut it at the end. But like, yeah, maybe he's doing this legwork to be seen as, you know, a value. No, here's my response to this. I agree it would be very compelling if the villain of your piece midway through the movie was like, oh, damn, this guy rules. I don't want to blow up my whole life. 
I have to make this work in a way where I get to continue to be a U.S. Marshal at the end while also covering my own tracks. Mm -hmm. Very compelling. The movie's not doing that. I wish it was. Mm -hmm. Or a guy who genuinely is like, you're my role model. I did all these crimes so that you would be impressed with me is a thing that I could get on board with. Not a thing that isn't Mm. happening in this story. Like the role model stuff, which is dropped into the last third of the book and is not super in the movie, as I recall. Uh, just kind of feels like they just want like a kind of like good little last line so they weave in like and now royce has come around on the concept of the u.s marshals well it feels like collins wants royce to have a deal (laughs) whereas like royce as a character is just like i'm evil i'm the evil guy i'm here for the heel turn and i mean i can forgive collins for being like wouldn't it be nice if there were pathos to this character uh, yeah, I either wish he was more evil or less evil, but because he's just kind of right in the middle, just kind of a smug little bureaucrat doing crimes, he's almost nothing to me. I think between the three of us, we have proven that, like, yeah, this movie isn't very good, uh, but it could have been. Like, I think we are all suggesting very small tweaks that would have made it infinitely more interesting. Uh you know, this might have been a couple drafts away and Tommy Lee Jones giving a shit away from it actually being a good sequel that might have spawned more movies. Can I ask you guys a question? Like, so the the front of this book says Warner Brothers presents the explosive new sequel to The Fugitive, but I never understood that U.S. Marshals was literally and explicitly and marketed as a sequel to The Fugitive. Because it's not like The Fugitive 2 U.S. Marshals. I can answer that in that it okay. wasn't like it. They didn't. Okay, good. Yeah, thank they did you. not hit that nearly hard enough. Uh, now the trailer, which I did just watch, uh, has the laughable moment of the uh, the voiceover saying like, "Nobody has ever seen a fugitive like this." Cutting to Tommy Lee Jones saying, "I have." <laughs> just a horrible line reading for something out of context. That is about as close as you get. Like at the time, I remember seeing ads for U.S. Marshals and saying, wait, is he, is he actually Sam Gerard again? Is he actually his fugitive character? Or is this another movie that is just a total retread of it? Uh, they did not beat that drum. And yeah, I, you can't call it. I mean, you could have called it The Fugitive 2. Now you would have called it The Fugitive 2. I don't know, like, what the... U.S. Marshals of the Fugitive yeah, story. Yeah, I don't know what the right <laughs> title is, but, uh, you know, maybe uh, Gerard, U.S. Marshal, or I something. I mean, it feels like The Fugitive should be called U.S. Marshals colon The Fugitive. Yeah. And then this movie should be called U.S. Marshals colon some other, like, something that has to do with Sheridan. Or you do, like, U.S. Marshals, colon, Richard Kimball. U.S. Marshals, colon, Mark Sheridan. I'm okay with uh, ditching U.S. Marshals altogether. I think The Fugitive is a good title for The Fugitive. And I think (laughs) that the issue here is that we have a movie with, like, a very specific plot and a very specific type of fugitive with, like, the government aspect, which wasn't present in the last movie. And for Mm -hmm. some reason, this one is called U.S. Marshals when it should be be named something specific to Sheridan. I guess my argument is that I understand trying to like open up the the opportunity of the franchise that you might develop if U.S. Marshall hits really hard, Mm -hmm. right? That like the fugitive is, as you're saying, so about Richard Kimball, but they're like, this one is about the cops though. And then we can do a hundred stories of the cops though, 
which is certainly the concept here. Right. Even though, as we've discussed, it's a little too even-handed. Like, it should be more cop-heavy, if that's what you're going for. Certainly. So I, I'm pro-U.S. Marshals as the title for this one. If you made this movie today, like, it would certainly have some type of subtitle. The Fugitive colon something. To, to tie it all together. Because yeah. you do want to capitalize on the success of... The Fugitive. Today it would be a CBS procedural and it would be like, you know, Tommy Lee Jones's team. Tommy Lee Jones would be nowhere near it. It would be like Gary Cole as Sam Gerard. Uh but <laughs> but everyone else is in it. Uh, you know, John, Joe Pantoliano and uh, uh uh what's his name? Uh you know, Jay Leno from uh, uh you know, all of them. Uh the the rest of them will be in it and uh and you know, and they it would go for like 9 seasons. It would just if they want to make this TV show tomorrow where Joey Pants is the Sam Gerard, like he stepped into the leadership position, I would watch it for nine seasons. If he grows the beard back. It, he has to have that beard. It's a good beard in the future. Beard would be yeah. great. Great beard. Um, this book also says that he's wearing a toupee the whole time, which the movie does not engage with. And I was like offended on his behalf. Yeah. <laughs> it, like, it didn't occur Isn't to- Isn't it famously a toupee though? I believe that it probably is, mm-hmm. but the movie within the within the world of the movie, he just is a guy with hair, and so for the book to be like <laughs> it's a toupee and everyone laughs at him for it, I was like, mean, that's mean. Yeah, it wasn't until mm-hmm. Joe Pantoliano starred playing bald characters or characters wearing a toupee that it occurred to me, oh, he's always wearing a toupee, like in the life, yeah. and now he just wears Kangol hats, I believe. But um, <laughs> <laughs> I just watched an episode of Mash where he was like the guest star. And he was like 20 years old with a full head of hair. And I spent the whole episode being like, that has to be Joey Pantoliano. But like, so much hair. Yeah, though. I mean, yeah, it's been thinning since Midnight Run or before uh, uh, Risky Business. Before. Yeah. I guess this just didn't even occur to me because, like, the character of Ralph Cifaretto from The Sopranos definitely canonically wears toupees. There's definitely yes. scenes of him, like, without them on yeah. and stuff like that. So that that image of him being, like, of the, the actor being really owning it and being like yeah i'll do that on screen i I, it just didn't even bump me in the book i was like yeah that's like part of joey pants thing speaking of (laughs) he famously uh at the end of the fugitive when his character was hit in the back of the head with a hook uh because there's that like scene where he's trying to find the villain and he gets hooked in the head he uh (laughs) had heard whisperings that there was going to be a sequel about the u.s marshals and was really concerned that his character had been killed off or that that was the intent and just during the rest of the filming of the scene rolled around moaning (laughs) so as to keep Renfro alive now I'm glad I think Cosmo Renfro is such a good character such a good character now thank god Joey Pants did that because we got this description of Renfro in the Max Allen Collins novelization of U.S. Marshals (laughs) Cosmo Renfro met them at the locked lobby door, letting them in. Earlier, they had secured entry with a warrant. Renfro's eyes were alert in his spade-shaped face, a smile always ready in the neatly trimmed beard. He was the smallest of Gerard's crew, and at 38, the oldest next to his boss. His styled brown hair was perfect all over, and he looked typically dapper. Light gray arrow shirt with rolled-up sleeves, Darker gray Hugo Boss trousers and black Italian loafers. Did Pantoliano pay off Max Allen Collins? <laughs> to be like, he's handsome and fashionable. I think it's it's just an accurate description. He's just a styling guy. I agree. I'm with Johnny, actually. 
This book is very mean to Renfro in certain ways, though. It's like he loses his luggage. He's very concerned about his like expensive wardrobe. And everyone's like, shut the fuck up, you lame dork. <laughs> Wear some trash like the rest of us. But I love him. Excellent guy. Great name. They don't name characters like that anymore. <laughs> Cosmo Renfro. You know, like, yeah, like that character's name would be like Chris Jones now. And I'm like, no, his name is Cosmo Renfro. That's Cosmo Renfro is a human character in a current Star Wars property. That's where that pops up. <laughs> That's the other weird thing about this, which makes the whole team such characters, is in The Fugitive, I don't recall Gerard constantly calling anyone by name. Like... I didn't know if any of those characters had names in that movie. And, you know, it was before IMDb. Uh, so I just referred to him as like, oh, yeah, uh, Beardy, uh, Hearing Loss Guy, um, uh, you know, the, the the black lady who would be on Lost, uh, Caldwell, uh, um, who, who got recast. I wonder what happened. Uh, L. Scott mm. Caldwell, uh, uh, who I love in The Fugitive and uh, was sad to see is not in this. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's... Uh, it is weird that this strives to make them all, like, you know, beef them up as characters, and yet it's still maybe not quite enough. N not as much as they deserve, I guess. If this is what you're doing, if you are making a new movie all about them. I think this is a failing of the film. Uh, Johnny, I completely agree with you, which is that if you're going to name the movie U.S. Marshals, and you're going to be like, you know those that team from the first movie? They are the entire focus of the second movie. By the time I finish the second movie, I should really have a sense of the team as a family, who each of these guys is, and, you know, how they bounce off each other, how they're sort of foils to each other. I really just walk away being, thinking, Sam Gerard is capable, Newman is young and dead, and Renfro is, is funny and, like, a little confrontational. Like, I don't feel like I have... A sense of the, the U.S. Marshals. Guys, yeah. I don't have it all. Um, I agree with you. I want a little bit more of everybody. But I can understand, like, if we were, again, if this was, like, a longer series, you'd be like, well, this is the book where we really focus on Noah. Mm -hmm. And we're going to really get to know Noah and care about Noah. And then, oh, no, he's been killed. And we're all very sad. Yeah. And in a different book, you'd spend more time with, like, Greg or whoever. One last passage I want to read that I just enjoyed. Mm -hmm. This is classic novelization mm -hmm. stuff where you're like, oh, a big thing happened. Let me have a nobody character that doesn't exist in the movie witness it. So I believe this is during the, pl the plane crash. Uh, it says, equally calm, though not eerily so, gliding down a rural highway below, his soul soothed by bluegrass from his radio, trucker Gary Myers of Cedar Falls, Iowa, hauling 18 wheels worth of John Deere lawnmowers, was enjoying the ride. It was one of those rare, clear nights where you could see everything for mile upon mile. Gradually, the sound of an approaching vehicle worked itself above the bluegrass, interrupting his reverie. A peculiar sound, building to a roar that tweaked Meyer's attention and made him wonder just what the hell kind of buggy was moving up behind his Peterbilt. His side mirror gave him surprising news. The landing lights of a big motherfucking airplane, he did not recognize it as a 727, Myers had never flown, were bearing down on him. He hit the brakes, and they squealed like a hundred trailer loads of porkers, the thunderous airplane roar closing in on him, and he ducked down, as if aware that the 727's rear tires were at that moment barely missing the roof of his truck. This is... this is not reinventing the wheel at all. This is in most novelizations we read. 
it's a particularly beautiful iteration of, you know, the random person that witnesses. It's just the, the, the pros are terrific. I'm shocked. I'm shocked by Collins. After reading Wind Talkers, I really thought yeah. he was a terrible writer. I'm going to have to listen to your Wind Talkers episode to figure out what went wrong there. Because, yeah, I think that this is pretty well written overall. And, you know, my gripes about him not always writing action all that well. Well, maybe these action sequences in this movie weren't all that good to begin with, and they were hard to, uh, you know, make exciting uh, in, in print form. So, I think, unfortunately, what you'll find is maybe he got the note that his action in U.S. Marshals wasn't great. And so he changed his style for Wind Talkers to here is beat for beat, action for action. What's happening in the action scene? Are you happy now? Oh. <clears throat> yeah, it sucks. Um, I also want to make a point that there is like a subplot in this book where Sam Gerard falls back in love with his boss, which is not in the movie. Oh, I was wondering if that was uh, like who played her in the movie. And She uh, says, I love you to him in the movie. She does. Oh, oh okay. Yeah. Okay, I totally didn't, but like, it didn't come across to me, I guess. But the way she says it is not like, I love you, you're the love of my life. It would be if if things had led up to it. It's like, at towards the end of the movie, when he's like, I gotta mm. go back out there and put myself at risk. She's kind of like, I love you, you're being a bit psychotic. So it's not totally clear that it's romantic mm-hmm. love, but having read this book, I think maybe... It was supposed to be romantic love, and then they just cut every scene leading up to it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the book does a very nice job. Like, at the beginning of the book, Sam's dating, like, a young news reporter. But over the course of the book, he, like, realizes that he fits better with his boss, who's, like, an age-appropriate woman who understands him and his needs and his job, and that they are so in sync that they get back together. And I remember thinking, boy, that's nice. Good for him. Yeah, it's a Good for it's them. a nice sentiment that I think is barely explored in this book. And and it's shocking <laughs> that it's even less so in the movie. And uh, you may be right, it, it does sort of reek of deleted scenes, like a whole subplot that probably used to be there and now is just like, you know, the light remnants of. I want to watch Sam Gerard. I want to watch like, you know, 50-year-old Tommy Lee Jones, I guess is the thing. Be like, I've cut love out of my life because I'm busy with my hunting job (laughs) and my kids. And then he's like, I didn't appreciate my one kid enough and now he's dead. So I might as well fall in love and kiss a lady. Like, I want to see it. That's that's like a nice little piece of that plot that would have been, you know, open your heart to love. Let the people you love know you love them before they get shot by Robert Downey (laughs) Jr. in a retirement home tommy was a sexy guy like whenever he was a romantic in movies i'm like i don't know it, it really worked i mean coal miner's daughter he's a he's a big old son of a bitch but uh yeah he's uh you can't deny who yeah he, he's a he's a he's a hottie you understand why she yeah. was married to him for so many years hannah blackman uh-huh you are Say something nice about me. Give me somebody nice. Mm-hmm. I'm going to give you something really nice. Okay, I found a loophole. Hannah Blackman, you are the youngest, most likable one of the U.S. Marshals. <laughs> you are unfortunately shot to death by a turncoat. In the afterlife, because it's mm-hmm. just a busy day for deaths. I mean, that <laughs> other guy from the, the traffic accident uh, died. Um... And yeah. so he's like, they're like processing him in heaven. You're going to heaven. Wow. Exciting. Oh, good for me. 
there's some reading material for you in the the waiting room to the the big house in the sky. One of the things on the table is U.S. Marshals mm-hmm. by Max Allen Collins, based on a screenplay written by John Pogue. Would you read it, knowing what you know? Or I guess would you recommend it to someone else in the waiting room, knowing what you know? Right, because it's my life um, being told in this book. Uh, Yeah, no, I think this book is good. I think this is the better version of the story. It's like much more propulsive and exciting than the movie is. And just like gets into the nitty gritty of it in a way that I really enjoyed. Yeah, I liked it. I would recommend it. I think it's well written and fun. And if you like like a little crime adventure, this is a solid little airplane book. Like Johnny was saying, like everything Johnny said when he did his an hour ago, (laughs) I deeply agree with. I do want to talk a little bit about, like, the part where Newman gets killed. Go for it. You're Newman. Because in the movie, I am. That's me, and I love him. He's such a cutie pie. But in the movie, like, because you're in the third-person cinematic viewpoint, like, you hear gunshots, you go in, and Royce is like, ah, he's been shot! Oh, he starts without the window! And you're like, oh, man, what happened in here? In the book, you're, like, with Newman for a lot of it. Mm -hmm. Then it moves away from him so purposefully that it is certainly because you cannot see what actually happens to him because it is a twist. Definitely. In a way that, like, really gives up the game um, and is disappointing. And that, like, Royce is like, uh, you know, we were struggling and he got shot and now he got shot in a way that now he can't talk. Oh, no. Oh, no. Hannah, unfortunately, (laughs) I do have that bookmarked as a particularly beautiful passage where they where they leave him behind i mean it is i i think when they have to leave him behind it's very good all of that is good. oh i mean narratively actual, when, like, they, when they go away oh, from him it's j- just to okay read just a small the mechanics part of, it. of it i found very maybe because i knew what was coming i was very much like oh this is pretty mercenary mechanics but please read it and prove well it wrong. basically just goes to mark sheridan for a second and it says uh, inside the fu- or inside the fugitive found himself in a lounge area of the Lorelei retirement home, having stumbled through a supply room and a foul-smelling kitchen, and now into this nest of forgotten souls. A TV blared a soap opera. Young, pretty actors performing for withered relics seated in furniture Goodwill, Goodwill would throw out. Even in his feverish frame of mind, Sheridan couldn't help thinking this was the sort of rest home you might expect to find in an industrial neighborhood an ancient building in shocking disrepair, a paint-peeling open okay. invitation to 60 minutes, draped in the scent yeah, I'm gonna stop of death you. and disinfectant. Yeah, hi. Here's why I'm going to stop you. That is like um, a solid four pages before what I'm Oh, well, I about. like that passage where he's just like, this nursing home sucks. I like that passage too. All of that is good. Here's what I'm talking about, which is on 203. Noah like gets up to the landing. He's following the trail of blood. And then... Newman followed the sound to the room where an aged, shrunken gent in an oxygen mask was cowering in his chair. A tremulous, gnarled figure pointed towards where the sound was drawing the deputy anyway. He moved through the busted-to-shit louvered doorway, gun in hand. At first, he didn't know what to think. Then it came to him, and Newman said, drop it. But the other man, unnamed, (laughs) other man reacted more quickly, (laughs) and Deputy Noah Newman took two forty-five shots in the chest, dropping in a shocked and bloody pile, revolver tumbling from his fingers." Like, it's so clear that they're like, we can't say it's the fugitive and we can't say it's Sheridan because it's not. But we can't say that it's Royce because it gives it up. Like, it just feels like that particular bit where it just like, you're with him, you're in his mindset. And then instead of being like, he turned the corner and saw his friend. (laughs) 
Right. You know, it has to do this little game, which I found like a little, there has to be a better way to do it. And it's to like not be with Noah in that moment. That's really like bad. It's, I agree It's with fine you. in the movie that Gerard like rushes into the room and Noah's been shot and Royce is like, ah, crazy, huh? Um, anyway, I would recommend the book. I like the book. <clears throat> Wonderful. Andrew Johnny's already been asked. Oh, you were just about to ask me. Yeah. I was about to ask I'm ready. you. I was about to ask you an hour ago, you son of a yeah, bitch. Yeah, I know. I really put the brakes on that. <laughs> you are a nice French immigré, okay? I'm the same person Johnny in? was? <laughs> oh, did you already Oh, wait, wait. He was her? the actress, so I guess I yeah. technically. <laughs> <laughs> You're your girlfriend. Fine. I'll do a different one. Okay. Hold, please. Let me reconfigure. I've been sitting on that for an hour, but fine. Even though you now heard the Hold. other one an hour ago, you've been sitting on it for an hour? It's the same thing. Yeah. I don't care. It was good. I was ready to Look, do it. Look, you can it, do it. Now it's I'm not. Fictional character no, versus real no, actress. No, I'm going to do a different one. I'm going to do. I'm going to do a different. Even one. I had forgotten who I was. So. <laughs> Just give me a second to do it. Okay, you are a government agent. Uh-huh. Okay, you have high taste and you're young and hot and shit, and you're kind of pissed off with the amount you're getting paid by the U.S. government. Sure. Okay. So you decide that what you're going to do is start selling state secrets to the Chinese. Uh-huh. Yeah. Great. Mm-hmm. And it's, like, pretty complicated. There's, like, a lot of secret meetings in parks that you have to go to where you, like, leave a briefcase and then somebody else picks up a briefcase, you know? Classic. But that means you're spending a lot of time just killing time in parks, so it seems natural that you like to hang out in parks. Uh-huh. While you're in those parks... Would you waste your time reading U.S. Marshals, a novel by Max Allen Collins based on the screenplay by John Pogue? And then would you shoot me in the chest? (laughs) This is only recommended to people who really like the movie. I have to say, I I find the movie so disinteresting that, like, it wouldn't make me happy, I think, to read this just, like, for fun. Uh, I was just kind of pleasantly surprised by the book because I had to read it because I made us read it. And it was better than the movie, and it you know it, and also it was better than the other uh, Collins book that we've read. So I I personally found some joy in it, but I would not recommend it to another person uh, unless they were like U.S. Marshals. I love it. It's the Godfather Two of fugitives. Like then I'd be like, well, you 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 got to check this book out. I think the conclusion we've reached is that this book might be perfect for someone like me who loved the fugitive but never saw u.s marshals you get a little something there's something there a little of that flavor but uh you know it's not going to be as good but maybe less disappointing than the movie itself i think it is better than the movie also this this book has a couple funny moments where someone's like what about richard kimball and sam gerard has to be like shut up about (laughs) does he come up this much in the movie i couldn't believe how many times they reference richard kimball I think maybe once when, like, the news reporters are like, Sam Gerard, best known for the apprehension of innocent man Richard Kimball, but, like, not not to the amount that it's in the book. Yeah, I get starting off with that, just reminding everyone, but you do not want to constantly remind your viewers of the better movie that came before this. But, wow, the book references him so often. I, I I would love to read U.S. Marshals 5, where Richard Kimball comes back to help them solve a crime. Okay, we clearly have to write these books if no one else is going to read them. Like, I want all, I, yeah, like you said 10 novels, sure, 10, okay, we, we have two down, we just need to write eight more uh, Sam Gerard novels. I think there's a lot of space there. Yeah. 
to both to, to like be like Sam Gerard made a friend and it's Richard Kimball. Sam Gerard chases a dangerous, genuinely guilty person. Sam Gerard has to attend a wedding and then a crime occurs and he has to do Hercule Poirot stuff. Like he could do whatever he wants. I will read all of these. Like it, it would be the new authorized podcast. We would just <laughs> be reading uh, Sam Gerard books. You've got to think that they must yeah. have been so disappointed that this did not become a franchise. I'm, sh- I'm disappointed. I think Tommy was just fine with it. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I would like to watch more. I mean, he signed on to do a sequel, so mm-hmm. clearly he didn't mind playing this character. Yes, yeah. Uh, I, 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 well, I think I did hear stories that during the making of The Fugitive, he was thinking, wow, what a piece of crap. And it wasn't until it came out and he got all this acclaim. like, oh, okay, I guess so. It's so funny that, like, Tommy Lee Jones will just be like, I'm giving the worst acting performance of my <laughs> life. And then the movie is great, and he's so good in it. And he's like, well, it was, I didn't think it was <laughs> To our listeners. What a hero. Please rate our podcast. Mm. Please review it. Please subscribe. Please tell your friends. Also, head over to our Patreon, patreon.com slash authorized pod, to do whatever can be done there. And, as usual, I'm going to finish the episode by reading a quote from a classic piece of literature. Please tweet at AuthorizedPod if you recognize or think you recognize what it's from. <clears throat> hey, Sam, where did you say that fugitive was that we're chasing? Oh, I said he's over near the fountain head. Good night. I don't know what a fountainhead is. Now you gotta read the book to find out. As we discussed uh, in the novelization of U.S. Marshals, there's a lot of emphasis put on the characteristics of a manhunter versus the characteristics of a fugitive. And so I'm going to test the two of you, Hannah and Johnny, on which of these people that we are about to see are manhunters and which are fugitives. So the usual rules. Buzz in with your first name and then give me a guess. Up first... This person. Uh, bonus points on any of these Hannah. if you can name the movie. Also, Hannah Blackman. Oh, well, this is uh, Han Solo in Empire Strikes Back, and he is a fugitive. Mm. Mm. Han Solo, of course. And he's never, ever manhunting anybody. Yeah, this mm. sounds about right to me, right? I think mm. that's what I would have said. That's not what I put as an answer. Yeah, He's a gun you son for of a hire. bitch. What do you think? Well, but who's he chasing? I mean, <laughs> Thanks. he is okay. literally points. captured at the end of this movie. <laughs> Look, well, all, right, take all, right, two all right, all right, all right. I was wrong. I give Hannah two points. I was wrong. I'll upload it to the Instagram with the wrong answer. I'll do it. <laughs> okay. All right, so Hannah up two to zero. Up next, is this person a manhunter or a fugitive? Johnny. Johnny Pomato. 
he is a fugitive. This is uh, Demolition Man, right? Ooh. And uh, he has escaped from prison. And Sylvester Stallone is future cop who's going to catch him while having weird virtual sex with Sandra Bullock. Y- yes. And, and all of that correct, uh, as long as you meant Demolition Man is the movie, not that he is Demolition Man. Oh, no. Man. He is, uh, what's his character's name? He has a funky name. Uh, I have no clue. I, I think there's an X <laughs> in it. Like, there, there's a needless X in his name, I think. That that feels that feels it, like it's in step with Demolition Man. All I remember is that he, he shatters, like, glass at the end. Oh, yeah. So, real fun. Okay, two to two. Two points. What's that, Hannah? Oh, because he named the movie? Okay, got Fugitive it. Fugitive and movie, yep. I'm just keeping score down here. Okay, two to two. Up next, is this person a manhunter or a fugitive? Pay attention to this, the, the background in this one. Oh, Johnny. Johnny. Uh, he is a manhunter. This is another Wesley Snipes vehicle. He is uh, passenger 57. Oh, yeah. And uh, he is, he's on the plane, and he's, he's like, right plane, right time. He's going to stop those terrorists I haven't seen since I was a kid. Yeah, good movie. Oh, yeah. And uh, for, a bo- yeah, for a bonus point for my previous answer, uh, I would like to point out that his name is Simon Phoenix with an X. What I tell you? Unnecessary X. Seems like you looked it up, though, wow. so you don't get points for that. Of the game. Well, I looked it up after the fact. We, we, we were on the... Uh, the, the... <laughs> okay, okay, I'll There's take no I'll points take associated with character name, so everyone just, everyone just chill. Hannah sure turned on me pretty quick after I gave her the assist on the Han Solo thing. This film, uh, famously, of course, has the ultimate... Uh, has the ultimate catchphrase where the person doing the catchphrase like really painstakingly sets it up. The uh, Talking to a Russian man, are, are you... Are you a gambling man? And the best part of the movie is definitely that the Russian is like confused and he's like, Yes. <laughs> and then we get the always bet on black. What a Oh film. my god, I just got I mean, obviously always bet on black I get, but it never occurred to me that the Russian is red. Like oh my god. Wow. I never wow. thought about that either. My my mind is blown. And who Johnny, is Johnny, I was I was brighter than you at 16 years old. I was like, because he's Russian, I, a historian, understand. And the flight attendant with a gun to her head is uh, the double zero. Up next, Johnny leading four to two. Is this person a manhunter or a fugitive? Hannah. (laughs) Hannah. (laughs) Sorry. Hannah, what are we looking at? We're looking at William Peterson. And Uh my question... My initial thought was, of course, he is the Manhunter from Manhunter. But then I almost immediately was like, wait, maybe not. I don't think that's who he is. This is the famous scene in Manhunter where he reads a Bible to another man. Then my next thought was, oh, well, clearly he is the Manhunter from To Live and Die in L.A. But I've seen that movie enough times to know he never dresses like this in that movie. So I actually don't Mm -hmm. know this movie I guess, at the moment. But I do know it's William Peterson, and I'm going to guess he is a fugitive. Yes, and I'm trying to guess, uh, in what film did William Peterson play a blind preacher? Is what I think is going on here? My hot dude, William Peterson. And the blurry guy next to him, is that either Tim Roth uh, or or maybe Stephen Delane? I I really can't tell. I was, uh, this was perhaps discussed on the episode, but I was, I was literally visiting Hannah today and I flew <laughs> back and made this game in an Uber, resulting in 
my blurriest photos yet. <laughs> but what's the answer? So this, of course, is uh, a fugitive. Okay, I get a point. Uh, I really had to dig to find a movie in which Peterson played any sort of criminal because he is just always the cop. Uh, this is some movie called Gunjai. Ooh, I'm making a note. In which he he uh, his girlfriend cheats on him, and I believe he goes to like a casino or like a casino town, and the, whoever this guy is is like, you want to be a criminal with me? And he's like, yes. Okay, sexy. Gonna Great. watch. I'm taking one point, and I accept that. Yeah, this is not the Liam Neeson gun shy, which also features weird sex with Sandra Bullock. Wow. Damn, Sandra. Okay. This is, this is gun shy 1998, I guess. I think you were right that it is Michael Wincott, though. Oh, oh, oh that's that does have a Wincott. Wincott quality to him. Wow, that's definitely Wincott. Nice head of hair there. Johnny leading four to three... Up next, is this person a manhunter or a fugitive? Johnny. Johnny, what are we looking at here? We are looking at a fugitive, uh, an IRA fugitive in the film Blown Away. Mm. He is, it is mm. Tommy Lee yep. Jones, and he's very Bono influenced. He is, uh, he, he's like, becomes obsessed with U2 in the movie. That's like a plot point. Okay, so you're guessing fugitive from the, the Jeff Bridges film Blown Away. I think that's him in Blown Away, but it. It could be another. Oh, oh! It could be Black Rain. This oh, is, is Black Rain. He is a fugitive, so you're getting a point. But this is. Oh no! The his, package. The package. No, you're still not. Oh, right. I'm still <laughs> wrong. Say what it actually is. This, so he how many? Guess this is the villain played by Tommy Lee Jones from Under Siege. The mm. Stephen. Oh, King. you're right. Wow. I kind of forgot that Tommy Lee Jones had a a real uh, stint as a madman for a while there. Uh, well, look at him. Yeah. This is definitely some, as it says in the corner, moviestillsdb.com. This is definitely not like a, a, a shot from the movie. <laughs> <laughs> no, and yes, yeah. Would that have helped us? Yes. For some reason, I put the word fugitive in twice. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Up next, is this person a manhunter or a fugitive? Hannah. Hannah Blackman. Who are we looking this at here? This is Harrison Ford from Cowboys and Aliens. He is uh -huh. a manhunter. Slash fugitive, if you consider his civil war crimes. But I'm going, consider, I'm going with Manhunter. Do we consider Alien to be man? That's my <laughs> question. No, he's he's very actively, you know, after Jake, our protagonist. So, so. I get two points. So you get two points, uh, oh, which tie. makes it a tie of five to five. People at home are on the edge of their seats. <laughs> Up next, is this person a Manhunter or a fugitive? Uh, I'm talking about uh, the Wesley Snipes character. Johnny. Johnny, what are we looking at? Well, he's a manhunter because he's a cop. But he's kind of a bad cop because he's going to try to rob the money train with Woody Harrelson. Yes, we're looking at the poster for Money Train with Wesley Snipes and Woody Harrelson. Uh, and you are correct that he is but... a manhunter because it's not possible to be a cop without being an enemy of man. <laughs> And the person who he's trying to thwart is a uh, known murderer, Robert Blake. So, you know, extra points. Mm, cool. Sure. Good one. Johnny taking the lead seven to five. Up next, is this person a manhunter or a fugitive? Johnny. <laughs> Johnny. I guess he's a manhunter. Who are we I, looking at, Johnny? We're looking at Harrison Ford in the conversation. Mm -hmm. uh, 
I think his very character is kind of a muddled gray area, <laughs> if you will. I mean, I don't know if he qualifies for either, really, but he up to no good. I know that much. I mean, I'm spoiling the entire the conversation. So wait, what's your guess, Johnny? Well, it's Harrison Ford in the conversation, so, <clears throat> so. he bad. He he bad guy. So he. He's a manhunter, and that man is our loving protagonist, Gene Hackman. Uh, I would say that the man is uh, Duvall. Uh, well, oh, okay. But, but, so he, this is, but that doesn't matter. The point if is we, he's a hunter. I'm, I'm spoiling the entire movie, but he really wants to kill a guy. So that's that's where I'm coming from. He really is spoiling the entire movie. People. I haven't seen it. Movie. Thanks, Andrew. It. Oh, my gosh. Oh, no. It's I've Coppola's spoiled this best movie for film. Hannah before. I know I have. I know it. I know the deal. It's fine. I'll still like it when I see it. I don't believe in spoilers. Up next, nine to five, Johnny Leeds. Uh, Is this person a manhunter or a fugitive? Hannah! Hannah, what are we looking at? This is William Peterson in Young Guns 2. He is a manhunter. He is Pat Garrett. Wow. Bravo. That is true. Young Guns 2. That's on you, Johnny, because it's Mm -hmm. better than the first one. Better than the first one. Yes. Wow. You know, oh my uh, God, Johnny. I, uh, there is this quote from the Young Guns 2 special features where Emilio says, what's the point of making a sequel if it's not going to be better than the original? And you can tell he believes it and made sure Young Guns 2 was better than the original. <laughs> I think about it constantly. It changed my life. How does he explain Mighty Ducks 3? He's not really in that one, to be fair. Yeah, it's just a cameo. He knew he, it right, wasn't better. Right. And so he said, I'm going to not be in it as much. Up next, is this person a manhunter or a fugitive? Hannah. Hannah. This is Wesley Snipes as Blade, Mr. Eric Blade, in the movie Blade, and maybe Blade uh-huh. too. But I think he is both a manhunter and a fugitive because he hunts the men who are vampires, but he is on the run from the world because he himself is a vampire. But I will go mm, with manhunter if we had to pick one. I find that on the run from the world thing quite unconvincing. And... <laughs> Unfortunately, I have to tell you that what he hunts is not man. Oh, come on. And so he is neither, but you get the point for identifying the movie. I should get a point because he does hunt human being-esque things. Vampires. Men. When I made my Cowboys and Aliens joke, I was just joking. Come on. on. Hannah, I thought you were going to be like- I'm giving myself a point. I thought you were going to be like, because at some point he kills a human, but I don't- No, I don't find this argument compelling. All right. I'm no, giving myself wait, wait, the wait, second wait. point because Johnny agrees with me and we both know uh, that I'm correct. Yeah, I think Hannah's correct. We're tied. Uh, except uh, the one thing I will question is, his name is Eric? Yes. Eric, Eric Blade? <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. That, yeah, they don't put that on the poster. Okay. They don't, Eric but it's Blade. in the movie. Up next, is this person a manhunter or a fugitive? This guy. Johnny. Hannah. <laughs> Johnny, I heard you first. Uh, that that is a a fugitive. It's Francis Dollarhide, right? Uh, mm. From Manhunter, uh, he's the Tooth Fairy, you see. But also, mm. he hunts human beings, so he's kind mm. of a manhunter. Oh, uh, but well, not by the definition of U.S. Marshals. So I think mm. Johnny should get it. I mean, yeah, we are again in this you know this thing where he 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 does both, but he uh, he literally hunts men uh, and and some women. All right. Well, the answer here is that you he does a bit of both. The, yeah, I'll, I'll take the half point. Well, I'll give you the two. I think that uh, the the bit of both guess would have gotten you a third point. 
sneaky rules. All right, so what do we have? 11 to 9, Johnny? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, unless that was the last one. I think there's one more. No, I think that was the last one. I think Johnny oh. won. Let's see. Yeah, it ended. <laughs> That's what happens when you make a game in an Uber. You don't know when it ends. 